0: This week's Shabbos is uh, Parsha Tzavah And we also read the additional uh, section from Parsha Zokher About remembering Amalek Remembering um, what Amalek did to us on the Mitzvah to obliterate them um, And that's because it's the Shabbos before Purim The Shabbos that blesses Purim And Purim, um, the evil person of Purim was Haman Who's a descendant of Amalek And that's why it was instituted to read the Parsha of Amalek before Purim so um, I'm, instead of the regular Parsha message, I want to give a message about Purim. There's so much to talk about. We'll begin now um, and continue hopefully next week before Purim as well. The, uh, the story of Purim famously is a story of where Hashem is hidden through all types of different uh, seemingly random occurrences. Right? Hashem's name is not even mentioned in the Megillah one time because it's a story a story with a king and a queen and a feud and ministers and a good minister and a bad minister it, it could read like a, a an interesting novel um and yet we celebrate it because we recognize that it's all about hashem who's enclosed in the different garments if you will of nature um and the different seemingly random happenings of nature but that hashem is orchestrating all of those events and bringing them together ultimately bringing about the great miracle of the saving of the Jewish people in the story of Purim. Um, the story begins with a, a very interesting uh, uh, happening. And that is, the king makes this huge party. Um, and at some point during the party, he calls for his queen. And she refuses to come. Um, and he has, her, he has her put to death. And that's, again, that's the opener story of the Megillah. And ultimately, because he lost that queen, he's going to have to find a different queen. The other queen, unbeknownst to him, is going to be Queen Esther, who's this uh, holy, uh, great person, etc., etc. But if we, if we focus in on that story itself, there's something that's uh, odd, bizarre in that story. Um, the king calls for his wife, the queen, and she refuses to come. Refuses to obey the king's command. Um, he then calls for his seven advisors, uh, great ministers to discuss with them what should what should the queen's punishment be. Uh, she refused him publicly. She said she's not coming. Um, what should he do to her? And they, they, all of them are silent aside from one whose name is Memuchan. According to the Medrash, this is actually another name of Haman who's going to appear later in the Megillah. Um, and he says, I think the queen should be put to death because after all, The message is going to go out that women don't listen to their husbands and all the women in the kingdom and all the husbands are in jeopardy of losing the honor um, that their wives should have for them. And the king listens to Haman and he has the queen put to death. That's the story. The question is, um, why was there a question in the first place? Um, When one disobeys a king in any... Of these countries we're talking about old-time kings uh, where a king is the monarch and his w- word is law um, when you disobey the king uh, as even esther writes later in the megillah that if i just come to the king without being called Ahas das hamis, is the death penalty um, so the king his wife blatantly disobeys him um, in public and the king doesn't know what the rule what should be done t- with her And what even makes it more interesting is that when Haman does say the queen should be put to death, he doesn't say the basic idea because she disobeyed the king, she rebelled in the king's will. He says this whole logic, this whole idea, because other husbands and other wives, as if the fact that she disobeyed the king in public, that's not a reason. That's not a reason for punishment. And this is very odd, understanding the basic rule of, of, of rebelling in a king and disobeying a king in public, which shouldn't have created any question in the first place. And this is a question that commentaries deal with. There's an answer that the Rebbe gives to that. And he says, it's interesting, when Ahasuerus made the party, the Megillah says a verse, that says, that, that there was plenty to drink and plenty of wine and spirits to drink, but there was no, um, no one forced you how much to drink or what to drink, should you drink, should you, drink? Should you not drink, it was up to you. And the Megillah goes on to say, So the king established that when it comes to this party, and he established this for all of the ministers of the party, and all of the chefs, and the cooks, and everyone there, that everyone should have the full ability to do whatever they wanted. Yes to drink, not to drink, how much to drink. The party was made in a way to give everyone... Their rights and their abilities to express themselves and enjoy exactly the way that they wanted. This then becomes the foundation for the dilemma what to do with Vashti. Because being that the king instituted initially that this party was going to run different than any other party. Normally you come to the royal party, you gotta act in the way that's um that's prescribed for the royal party. It's a royal party. There's there's the king and there's the decrees and there's the custom. You gotta act according to what's expected of you at this party. But in this party, Ahasuerus said no. This party is going to be for everyone to act exactly as they want. This is the rule of the party. If so, uh, when Ahasuerus calls for Vashti and she says, I'm not coming she's really within the framework of what was permitted, which is everyone does what they want at this party. Everyone enjoys exactly the way they see fit. So Vashti says, well, then I don't enjoy coming to the king in the middle of the party. I'm I'm good at the party the way I am, where I am, and I'm not coming. That's why there was a question. That's why there was an enigma. And that's why even when Haman does suggest um, that Vashti be put to death, which she is, it's not based on the fact that she rebelled against the king. It's because of some outside reason that this can have a negative effect on others not related to the party not related to the king and that becomes a separate reason and that's why she's put to death that's the explanation in the actual story that happening the question is what's the deeper meaning behind this uh why was this party in that way and why did this happen we know everything that happens in general in the world is, uh, has a deeper meaning and a deeper message to it, especially when we're talking about a story in the Torah, especially when we're talking about the Megillah, where Chazal tell us that really the entire Megillah is an allusion um, to to Hashem and the Jewish people, and that really whenever it talks about the king, Hamelach in the Megillah, it's it's really talking about Hashem in hiding. So Achashverosh is playing out Hashem in this Megillah in many ways, and again, that's something that I hope to continue talking about. So if you understand that the Megillah is really... Um, Hashem in hiding which just um, uh, uh, on the side for a moment that's the reason for the custom of getting dressed up on Purim especially for children because it's all about Hashem who's dressed up in the various different episodes and stories of the Megillah but if we do understand that then we have to understand what is it about this story of the Megillah the, the opening story of the Megillah where this great feast is made in the way that everyone it's established that everyone should do exactly as they see fit and the answer to this lies really in a very powerful statement of the Gemara. The Gemara says that the story of Purim really constituted the full acceptance of the Torah. Even though the Jewish people had accepted the Torah at Sinai many, many years earlier, over a thousand years earlier, um, or close to a thousand years earlier, the, um, the, the acceptance of the Torah at Sinai was never full until the story of Purim. And the reason for that the Gemara says, is because at Har Sinai, Kalal Yisrael was sort of coerced into accepting the Torah. It says the famous idea that Hashem took the mountain of Sinai and threatened the Jewish people. He says, if you see the Torah now is good, if not, then here you'll all be buried. And the Jewish people obviously accept the Torah. But whenever someone accepts something under duress, they accept it because I was told I have to accept it. The acceptance is not a complete one. Only when One accepts something when there's no outside, um, nothing outside that's pressuring them, and they have the full ability to decide yes or no. Only then is the acceptance a true acceptance, a real acceptance, and one that they're ultimately accountable for. So here, the Gemara says that at Sinai it wasn't full, wasn't complete, because we were forced, we were coerced. Hashem said we had to receive the Torah. A thousand years later, in the story of Purim, no one was cursing us to receive the Torah. The very contrary. For being Jews, we would have to pay for our lives. Haman um, affected and Ahasuerus and gave out the decree that the Jewish people would all be killed. And yet, if a Jewish person would opt out of the religion, then he would not be killed. So, but, and yet, the Jewish people all opted. They said, we're staying Jewish. We're staying Jewish. We're staying with Mardochai. We're staying with Esther. Um, we're not, this, is, this is what we want to be. This is what we want to do no matter what. At this point, they had, they had fully and as, a, as an entire people... Accepted Hashem and accepted His Torah out of their own free will, without any level of coercion whatsoever. In our life as well, when when the only the truth of acceptance is because we have bechira chavshis, because Hashem gives us the ability to choose and the ability to make choices right or wrong, and it's only because of that that our choices are really meaningful, because we're because it's up to us and we choose what we choose. Once we understand that, that's what's going on behind the story of Purim. So this first story of the Megillah makes so much sense. Ahasferosh represents Hashem. And Ahasferosh makes this decree. He establishes that the way it's going to work now in the story of Purim is kirtzon ish ve'ish, that everyone is going to have the ability, the right to choose. And I'm not going to curse anyone in what they do right or wrong. If they're going to listen to me, you're not going to listen to me. And that's because he's setting the stage for what the story of Purim really is all about. Which is our ability and our right to make that free, that choice and to choose Hashem not out of coercion, but because we come to that realization. One last point: It's interesting that this part of the, this idea that he gave them the freedom of choice was about drinking wine and about a party and about that everyone can drink as much as they want. When we talk about drinking wine, the pasuk says, "Nichnas yayin in when wine goes in, the secrets come out. And we know when people drink wine, when people get inebriated, um, we find out a lot more about them. Their insides come out. Because when a person is regular, so a person controls themselves based on the way they're supposed to control themselves and so on. When one drinks wine, it has the natural effect on a person. It, leaves down, it makes the person less inhibited. And the person reveals more of who they are. So what happens when one drinks wine? And here there's two opposite things that can happen. One could drink wine and become silly. One can become um, hurtful. One can become immoral. Because if the insides of a person are silly or hurtful or immoral or any other thing negative, and it's just that I'm acting good, and I'm acting um, you know, in accordance to what's expected of me, then give me some wine and you'll see who I really am. On the other hand, Wine can help one get rid of their inhibitation, inhibitions, that is, in a positive way and help them connect to others in a way that they wouldn't be able to connect other, other, otherwise and express a greater and deeper and holier and better level of themselves than perhaps they're normally able to. And that's the other beautiful thing about the story of Purim. It started with this great feast and wine and everything led by Achashverosh, and which was a feast that was very immoral and very gluttonous and it was all about drinking wine and having a good time. And yet the mitzvah of Purim is to create a Purim feast where again we drink wine and again there's a mitzvah of drinking wine on Purim more than any other holiday of the year. And of course, we're not meant to drink wine in a way that becomes frivolous, in a way that becomes immoral, a way that becomes negative or hurtful. It's all about trying to connect to something deeper and greater and holier in ourself by letting down our external selves, our boundaries, our inhibitions. So that wine itself is the ability to take it one way or take it another way, to take it in a way that should reveal something negative and something hurtful or in a way to reveal something even greater within me. And this lies, again, in what Ahasuerus says in the Megillah, or the Pasik says, We have the ability to choose not only when it comes to our external behaviors, are we going to behave properly or not, we even have the ability to set ourselves up in a way that what's wine going to do to us? When I let my, when I let my guard down, so to speak, what's going to come out? And even that lies within our ability, Hashem gives us the ability to, to um, create ourselves and to form ourselves in a way of what's wine going to do with us what's our insides going to be what's going to come out when our guard is down so to speak and this is the gift of the story of Purim the gift of being able to choose properly and to be able to create that we should be in such a way that even wine which can be dangerous to be something that's only that only helps us and brings us better and closer to Hashem and to other people to be continued and